0: We're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. You'll find that on page 873 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, you will need your Bible open today as we follow along and work verse by verse. So I invite you to do that. And as you're finding your way there, I I do uh, just want to take a moment and uh, to uh, thank uh, my brother uh, Steve Rogers. Where are you? There you are, Steve. Um, It has been a a delight uh, to work alongside and... and, uh, ...to have your help in pastoring this church for four and a half years. And uh, I'm not sure, you probably don't know all that Steve has done and and poured his heart into. Uh, He's a man that likes to work behind the scenes. Uh, But we are all richly blessed because of your ministry. In fact, without Steve, uh, you may not know this, uh, Steve chaired the pastor search committee that uh, brought me here. And so I have a very special personal thanks to my brother... And I don't know if it's the fact that he's a lifelong government bureaucrat, um, but it, it was that, I think it was like uh, 18 forms I had to fill out um, just to get the interview. And then uh, after the, how many, Steve, remember how many references you required? It it was at le- least two dozen. Yeah. It was 20. Now listen, I'm, I'm a preacher, so I'm given to exaggeration, uh, but... But literally, it was at least two dozen references. Steve kept asking for I need more rep." I don't know what they were saying about me. Um, but um, we are thankful for you, brother. And uh, we would like to, to pray for you even in a moment. Well, first of all, let's consider the Word of God here in uh, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had drops And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and set him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you Come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." Then he will be honored. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word now in the words of Christ. We pray that you would give us hearts to rejoice in who Christ is and what he teaches us today that we might be made more like him. We are thankful, Father, for uh, this, this conference, the Native American Women's Conference. We're thankful for the 70 Native American women who came and attended. We ask, Father, that your blessings will be upon them even now. Father, that You would draw them close to You. You would bind up the hurting. You would pour out Your love upon the lonely. You would indeed, even through the seeds that were sown, save the lost. And Father, we are also thankful this morning for our brother Steve and the work that he has given the labor that he has sacrificed for this church and for Your kingdom. And Father, we trust, even as we just saw, that he has a reward headed to him. We pray that You would help him and bless him in the ministries and the life that he has uh, in front of him. And now, Father, help us as we consider your word. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about 60 years ago when uh, the renowned, uh, world-renowned classic scholar Dr. E.V. Ryu completed his translation of Homer into modern English through the uh, Penguin Classics series. And the publisher was so pleased with him that they, they asked this 60-year-old man who had been an agnostic his entire life to publish the four Gospels, to translate them from Greek into English. His son heard that his father took the job and he said, it will be interesting to see what father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of father. But he did not have to wonder long. Within a year, Dr. Ryu, world-renowned in his field, lifelong, committed agnostic, responded to the gospel and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Such is the power of the transforming word of God. It happened in his life and it has happened many, many, many times in many other people's lives. It was almost uh, two years ago today that we started our study in Luke's Gospel. So happy anniversary to you. <laughs> Sermon number 64 in Luke's Gospel. Out of about 100, maybe 101 sermons that we have or I have planned, I, I wonder what is Luke making of you? I wonder if you can look back on your life in the last two years And see how perhaps God has changed you through the study of His Word. I think of my own time. I believe by God's grace I am more in love with Jesus now than I was two years ago. I certainly know I hate my self-righteous heart more than I did. Grace. I feel grace growing in my heart for other people. This is why we study the Bible week after week. That's why we gaze upon God week after week. Specifically, as we look in Luke's gospel, we gaze upon the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that we might be changed by Him. And we gaze upon Him that we might become more like Him. We become like what we watch. You realize that, I think. My children would testify to that. They look at their daddy, gaze upon their daddy, and for better or worse, they, they become like me. So it probably doesn't surprise you that Friday night we stayed up late watching our Los Angeles Dodgers beat your Washington Nationals. Right? <laughs> they are my kids after all. Right? My children like their mountains tall, just like Dad. They like their coffee black, just like their father. Right? See, we, we emulate those we admire we become like those we behold nathaniel hawthorne once wrote in the 19th century a short story uh, capturing this principle called the great stone face it's a story of a village underneath a mountain and on the mountain was carved the face of a man a- and there was a legend that of this of this village one day a man with a face like that carved on the the side of the mountain would come to the village and bring untold blessings upon the villagers there was a boy in that village named Ernest who just loved that legend. And he would sit hours at a time growing up just looking upon that, that, the face carved in that mountain wondering when this man would come. Well, Ernest grew up. Occasionally he would hear a rumor that someone had come with a face resembling the mountain and he would run to, to, to investigate and always disappointed that he was not the one they were waiting for. And as Ernest searched for this man, he grew in love for that village and cared for many of the villagers. And one day a man was talking to him, looking at Ernest, and he could see the great stone face in the background. And suddenly the man threw his arms around Ernest and began to shout, Behold! Behold! Ernest is himself the likeness of the great stone face. Right. This little story that Ernest had become like the one he beheld. It reminds me of what the, uh, Paul said of the Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians, he said, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one degree to another. So Paul saying the more you look at Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus, being transformed from one degree of glory into another degree of glory. That's why I'm thankful for this time on Sunday morning that we have. This is why I'm thankful, even specifically, for the gospel of Luke. In fact, I hope and I pray, as I have this week, that we would once again behold the glory of Jesus. That we would look upon him and be captured by him, that we would become more like him, even this simple time that we have this morning, that his love will become our love and his generosity would become ours. So let's consider his glory again. This time, in fact, once again, at the dinner table. You see that in verse 1. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Luke likes to present Jesus at the dinner table. I don't know if you picked that up. In fact, Jesus likes to talk about heaven as the feast. Uh, We saw that in Luke 13. We'll see that almost throughout Luke 14. Heaven is a picture of a a banquet. We'll see that again in Luke 15 in in the story of the uh, prodigal sons. Right? Heaven is constantly pictured as a feast. And perhaps that's why Jesus is always feasting. So in Luke chapter 4, he's at Simon's house for dinner. In Luke chapter 5, Levi, the tax collector, throws him a great feast. In Luke chapter 7, he's at the Pharisee's house dining when uh, the woman of the city comes and anoints his feet. In Luke chapter 9, he's the one hosting. This time, 5,000 people feeding them all. In chapter 10, a very intimate dinner there at Martha's house with his sister. In Luke chapter 11, he's at another Pharisee's house. And, and this time, his, not only are his feet not washed, he doesn't wash his hands and upsets everyone there. And now we find ourselves back here in Luke 14. And where's Jesus? Well, he's back at dinner. Right? He's back at the table. This time, I think for the third time in Luke's Gospel, he's dining with the Pharisees. This, by the way, would be the last meal that Jesus would have, at least recorded, with the Pharisees. He would not be invited back, and I think you will see why in just a moment. He tends to be offensive at these times. I don't think he's intentionally offensive. Well, maybe he is. I don't know. But certainly he wants to look beyond the behaviors and go go to the heart. And this is why I think Jesus is so often so challenging because he wants our heart. He, he's always after our, our affections, our desires, our, our delights, right? We're, 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 we are, are often willing to give God something. We, we say, okay, if I follow you, I'll speak this way, or I'll give this money, or I'll, I won't do this, or I won't do that, right? And we say, okay, here's some behaviors which I will give you, right? But you just leave my heart alone. I just want to love the same things I've always loved. I want to love the same things that the world loves. And God is not satisfied with that. He wants our heart. He continues to go after it. He wants our affections. Jesus is constantly criticizing right action done with a bad heart. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture. Perhaps you remember the time in Isaiah's book in which God calls for the people of Israel to, to worship Him and to fast. And so what, you know what they do? They fast and they worship Him. They they do what God calls them to do. And they gather and they're fasting and they're worshiping. And God through the prophet says to them, I hate your worship. I hate your fast. Which is kind of confusing, isn't it? Because I don't know if you're anything like me when you fast. I'd rather be eating than fasting. And if you hate it, then why are we doing it? If you hate our worship, then why are we even here? Well, God tells... He says, you may be here, but your heart isn't. Where's your heart? I'll tell you where it is. It's far from me. What do you love? Where are your affections? And this is what Christ, I think, wants. He wants our hearts. In particular, He wants you and I to be like Him in that we would have a compassionate heart. Consider, first of all, this morning the truth. We learn from our gaze upon the glory of our Lord that we are to have a compassionate heart. Jesus here, you know, in verse 1, is um, on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, He went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. So after the Sabbath worship, there evidently is a big lunch there. And you notice whose house it is. It's the ru- a ruler of the Pharisees, right? So they've called in the big guns now. Okay, this is not just freshman Pharisee, right? This is, this is senior class Pharisees, right? And here they have to meet with... Jesus comes and meets with the, the, the head honcho, one of the rulers. And you think, well, why, why are they inviting Jesus over for dinner? Maybe they had a change of heart, right? Maybe they want to play nice. Well, I remind you of what we saw back in Luke chapter 11, in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. See, not, <laughs> it's not surprising they invite Jesus over for dinner. What's surprising is that he went. Right? I mean, if you've been trying to, you know, opposing me for 13 chapters of my life. And then you say, hey, Stephen, you want to come over for dinner? You know what I'm going to say? No. I don't want to go to your house. Right? But Jesus went you know why because he loves everyone doesn't he even his enemies and so he goes to this house and you notice how dinner is going or lunch is going you see at the end of verse one they were watching him carefully they're looking for a fight they want to nail him right so they watch him and they're watching him carefully which i think makes for a very awkward lunch don't you Right? You're eating and you got 20 people staring at you with their clipboards in hand, right? You're just kind of watching what you're doing. And, and there they are at dinner watching Jesus carefully as we see in verse 2. And behold, there was a man who had dropsy, right? I, I like how put Luke puts this. And behold, right? Whammo! Look at this. There's a man with dropsy there. Isn't that interesting? Now dropsy, by the way, we might call Edema. And it is uh, uh, what happens when your body builds up with fluid. It is not a disease in itself. It's a sign of a more serious disease, most likely congestive heart failure or liver failure. And so your body gets swollen, usually starts in your legs, moves up your torso. It is very painful and often is a sign that you are soon going to die. And so what is this man doing here? I mean, a ritually unclean man just happens to show up at the ruler of a Pharisee's house for lunch? Does that seem a little shady to anybody? It's a trap. He's the bait. Right? In fact, you remember back in Luke chapter 13, remember the bent over woman? Verses 10 through 17. And he healed her on the Sabbath day, and the pastor stood up and said, you shouldn't heal. Uh, uh, you, you did it wrong, Jesus. And then, and then Jesus rebukes the pastor in front of everybody, and then everybody celebrates, right? Because they all think that's wonderful, right? And, and, and Jesus, Jesus against the pastor, and, and the pastor gets soundly defeated. But now, what? Jesus is on their turf. Right? It's not one pastor and Jesus with the whole crowd. It's Jesus is with the, the Pharisees and a ruler of the Pharisees. And you'll see in verse three, they even brought some lawyers with them, right? So you got a whole room of Pharisees and lawyers. And, and now they think, okay, we got you now. Just take the bait, right? Uh, uh, Just come on. You're, you're, you're going to be trapped. Now here's the thing. It's, it's hard to trap Jesus because he's God, right? And so that's difficult. But sometimes my kids try to surprise me. I don't know if your kids are like this. And so every once in a while, they succeed. But usually they fail because they'll, they'll dress up as ninjas at like two in the afternoon. And it's like, I got you guys are in black, but I can still see you, okay? Right? Um, and, and, and so they're here. They're, they're trying to trap Jesus, but it, it, it's not, it's not going to work, right? They're, they're here, and they, and they go to lunch, and there just happens to be, you know, a Dropsy Dan right there next to Jesus. And... And 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 you know, hey, w- welcome, Dan. Why don't you sit here next to Jesus? And Jesus, you sit here. And and then we'll all watch and see what happens. And they think they think we got him this time. What, what is he going to do? with dropsy Dan. Right? And they're watching him closely. Like, go ahead. Just take it. Just try it. And you notice what Jesus does? He does something unusual. He never does this. He doesn't heal. Instead of healing, let me ask a question. In verse three. And Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, or not?" Now, this messes up everything because they're not expecting a question. They're expecting a healing, right? In fact, he knows what they're thinking. You notice Luke says he responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, replied to them even though they haven't said anything. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And he confounds them with a single question. Is it lawful to do this on the Sabbath or is it not? If they say, yes, it's lawful, they're against their own tradition, right? They're soft on law enforcement. If they say no, they're the anti-healing group. And everyone knows they're heartless. So they're trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus ends up snaring them in just a single question. It's like one move, checkmate. Nice try, you lose. Okay? Um, and, and now and now I don't I don't know if you ever feel like cheering when you read the Bible. You ever feel like that? You just I mean I, I just love how he maneuvers these people are trying to maneuver him they do all this work and all he does one move and now they're 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 what? What what do they say? Look in verse four. But they remain silent. What could they say? They just sit there stewing in their hatred, and Jesus says, "Okay, I've got nothing to say. Come here, Dan. Right? And look what? And he, verse four. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. Jesus did three things: took him, he literally seized him, he gave him a big hug. I love you, Dan. Right? And, And then he healed him." you imagine the fluids dissipating? His organs healing. The swelling disappears. The pain vanishing instantly at the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he sent him away. It's like, now now get out of here. You weren't a guest at all. You were just bait. Go home to your family. Rejoice. And Jesus stands alone to face the, the hostility of these two dozen Pharisees. It's almost like a superhero. Like rescuing the person, sending him off, and then standing to face the hostility. All by himself. I can almost see his cape flapping in the wind in my mind's eye that Jesus says, bring it on. I'm ready for you guys. In fact, he attacks. Verse 5, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Question for you guys. If you Sabbath and you little Joey's playing outside and you hear a scream and then a, then a big splash and you run out there and there's Joey down in the bottom of, of the well, and you say, You okay, Joey? He says, Yeah, Dad, I'm okay. Can you throw down a rope? Wh- which of you say, Well, I would love to, but it's the Sabbath. And um, so you just tread water, and I'll be back tomorrow, right? right? You should have fallen in on Thursday, Joey, um, but I can't do anything for you. Well, of course, you don't do that. Or he says, Or oh, an ox, you see that? Right? That's how you make your living. You're going to protect your means for gain? Your ox is in danger. Your livelihood's in danger. Right? Your livelihood's in danger. You'll, for, you'll forsake your traditions in a second. Right? And you will go and rescue that ox. Why? Because you love your own welfare. And and your tradition, your law, stands between you and your family or a valuable ox. You find no problem finding the loophole. But if it's someone else's need, right? If the sickness is not your problem, then the law becomes rigid To protect you from actually getting involved in needy people's life. You see, this is not about the Sabbath. This is about their hearts. And they have cold, dead, and wicked hearts. Jesus is saying to them, you love nothing that doesn't benefit you. You harm and belittle people. You invited that man who's about to die, who's excluded and outcast just to try to trap me. You have no compassion. You have wicked, filthy hearts. Now pass the casserole. Right? Right? that's what he's saying and now we look at that we go my goodness these dirty rotten Pharisees finding loopholes to suit their own needs who does that lots and lots of people many many people say well I, I think this and I know God says that but God must not meant that because I think this right Bible says, those who don't receive Christ will spend eternity in hell. How many people say, "Well, it can't mean that. Eternity must not mean eternity. Or you Bible tells us clearly we are only to marry Christians, we're only to marry people of the opposite sex. And we say, "Well, you know, God of course wants me to be happy." So the word can't mean that. Scripture says, "Keep the marriage bed sacred. We think, well, you know, I love her, I love him, we're gonna get married anyway, so what's the big deal? It can't mean that. The Bible says divorce is a sin. We say, well, if God knew my situation, he would be okay with it. It can't mean that. The Bible says, husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church. We say, well, you don't know my wife. Uh, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We, what, listen, 21st century, I'm not submitting to anyone, right? It can't mean that. The Bible says the first act of obedience is to be baptized, but then we say, "What? I have to get wet and I have to get in front of people. So I, I'm not probably not a big deal if, if I don't. The, the scripture tells us to be subject to your elders and the elders call for a fast or the elders say the best way to organize our church is through covenant membership and you say, well, that's dumb, I'm not doing that. Right? Can't mean that. I'll, I'll submit to them whenever I agree to them. But when I don't agree, then I won't. That's not submission. That's agreement. Right? The Bible says that pastors are only to be men. Right? We say, well, I want to be a pastor and I'm a woman. Right? I'm not a woman, just to be clear. But that's what people say. Right? And so can't mean that. Forgive 70 times 7. Right? Well, if you knew my situation, you knew the harm done against me, you wouldn't ask me to forgive her or him. Now, listen, if I haven't offended everyone yet, we could keep going. We do this all day long. This is our heart. We have a heart that wants to change the law of God to fit our own situation. Right? And so it's okay in times for us to lie or cheat or divorce or be unforgiving. Right? When it comes to us, the law is rubber. But when people lie to us and cheat us, do something against us, well, then the law is rigid. And Jesus looks at these men and he says, you use your rigid law to protect yourself from the inconvenience of helping needy people. You have no compassion. The response is found in verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. We don't want to talk about it. It's astonishing to me. Could you, could you imagine if someone... This morning came up onto this platform and and it's clearly their body is swollen and someone walked up to them and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I heal you and laid on hands. And we just saw the fluid disappear from them. We just saw the pain, the relief immediately come upon them. I mean, this place would erupt. There'd be singing and praising and praying and celebration and hugs. And this man's life has changed. His life is literally saved and there's what? Silence. They are silent. I don't know how long the silence lasted. I'm sure this was an awkward moment. Uneasy. They have nothing to say. And so Jesus evidently concludes, well, if you don't have anything to say, I have more to say. right?" And he'll say it not to ease the awkwardness. No, he's just getting started. The healing was just an appetizer. He's saying not only do you have a compassionless heart, you have a heart full of arrogance and pride. You need to have a humble heart. Consider, secondly, a humble heart as we see Jesus teach us in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying uh, to them. So you, uh, he, he's there and it's this big event, right? And there's this well-known wealthy man who has this party. And typically in this day, they would be in a courtyard and they would have a U-shaped table and at the, I guess, the bottom of the U, right there in the center, the man who hosts the party, he would sit. And the places of honor were on his right and on his his left, right? And the farther you away from him on the U, the least prominent you were, the less honor you have. In fact, Jesus, we still do this in weddings, don't we? And Jesus will actually refer to weddings in the next verse, right? Well, weddings are very expensive and carefully planned. They're very public events, and we honor people by the seating arrangement. So if you're close to the bride and the groom, right, you sit nearby. If you're the distant cousin, you're back in the corner, right? This is how we, we still do things like this. In fact, I was in, a number of years, I was in Honduras on a mission trip. We were there for like 17 days building a church building in the, the mountain town of Seguadapeque, And and we, we had just finished uh, a long day uh, in the hot sun working. And uh, our hotel was on the, the edge of a city square, and we got back to the hotel, and there's crowds everywhere. And we, we went out to the balcony, and we saw this, this massive Roman Catholic uh, celebration or service or something like that. We didn't know what was going on, but there were thousands and thousands of people just packed into this, this city square. It was, it was incredible. And once the crowd left, we all now the crowd's gone, let's go to dinner. And we all took a vote, and uh, they, they all wanted to go to Wendy's. Um, now, I, I don't know about you. When you go on mission, you no, know, you go on mission trips. You get the talk. Don't eat the street food. You know you got to be careful what you eat. Listen, I, I'm going to some place foreign. I'm I'm eating the street food. That's I'm I'm going to take the gamble. Right, right, Tom. And sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Right. But I'm I'm going to play the game. And uh, so, listen, I love you guys, and I don't want to be antisocial. I'm not going to Wendy's. I'm in Honduras. I could eat Wendy's in America. And so they all went, and I, I just started walking the town looking for a restaurant. Now, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm just restaurante or something like that. I don't know. That's Italian, but I'm looking for something. Um, and I walk into this restaurant, and, and I walk in, and I'm the only person in this restaurant. And, and I sit down at the table, and the guy comes, and, and he, I don't know what I order, but I know it's going to be Honduran, right? And so he, he takes my order, and I'm just sitting there waiting for my order. And I'm, I'm looking out the window. I'm, my table's right next to the glass, and a big military van pulls up. And they open the back, and six uh, soldiers, all with their, their camouflage carrying assault rifles, get out of the back of the van. And they all take positions at the door of this restaurant. Right? And so it's me in the restaurant. i got six armed soldiers outside the restaurant. I think, what in the world is going on? And, and, and uh, uh, just a little bit after they came, the, all the workers came out of the kitchen and they begin to take all the tables and they begin to line up in a straight row and from one end of uh, the, rest, uh, the, uh, the restaurant to the other end. And then they put chairs along both ends of the tables and then a chair at each end and then there's me right, right there next to the, end the table. And a, a, a couple minutes later, some shol- soldiers start showing up. And these guys, you can tell they're not privates. they got, they got you know, the ribbons and the sashes and they, they show up and they start to sit on one side of this table. And, and then after that, um, these priests start showing up. And, and these cardinals and whatever, and they, they start sitting on the other end of the table. So you got, you got soldiers on one end, side of the table, and the priests on the other end, and then you got the two empty seats at the end. And it wasn't five minutes later that this big fancy car shows up with, with the Honduran flag sticking out of the, out uh, of the hood, and someone gets out and opens the door, and this, this man walks out, and he's got just, he's got medals down his, the side of his chest, and he's got sashes and everything, and he walks in, and everybody stands up, and he goes, and I don't know if I'm supposed to stand up, but I did anyways. Uh, but, he, 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 right? he goes and sits down at the head of the table, and then they all sit down to him. And it's like five minutes later, I, t- I kid you not, you know who shows up? The Pope. Right? Now, it probably wasn't the Pope, but he. Right? Listen, he had a very tall hat, so he must have been, right? And he's got this golden scepter, and he comes into this, this restaurant, and they all stand up and kind of bow, and he sits at the other end of the table, and, and my back is like. 12 inches from the pope i don't know what's going on um and it was it was listen i was just like jesus watching it carefully right See, he's watching them how they're where they're going the exact places they know exactly where to go it was it was much better than wendy's let me tell you that um, right so jesus is watching them and look what he says in verse 7 he noticed how they're kind of a what, they're choosing the places of honor for themselves. He's noticed how they're, they're elbowing their way through and one guy puts his cup down here and this guy kind of comes and takes the cup and puts it over here. Then he sits down over here, right? And, and they're all sitting down and he's watching them move in and out of these conversations, weaving to the best seats. And you know what he sees? He sees their heart. He sees what they love. And they love the praise of man. They love to be well thought of. And Jesus begins to tell them how not to seat themselves in verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to the person, this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Can you imagine if you went to a wedding and you show up at the wedding and you're looking for a seat, and you think, well, there's some good seats down front, right? You, know, look at that. you go up there, and you sit down up front, and you're right there in the front. You think, this is pretty nice. I, got, I see everything that's going on, and uh, I'll be able to hear everything. And, and, and there you are seated, and, and a couple minutes later, someone comes and, and taps you on the shoulder, right? And he's got flowers in his jacket, and so you know he's an usher. And he says, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but that's Grandma's seat, right? And in just a moment, Grandma's going to walk down this aisle, and you're in her seat. And so, can you can you please get up? And, and you're a little embarrassed, and, and you get up, and you realize everybody's watching you, and, and there's the man with the camera, and he's he's you know he's filming you, and right? you know every anniversary that they watch right their wedding video, you know there's Lenny being escorted out of the seat of honor, and, and you you kind of just kind of walk down the. Uh, the aisle with your head down and you're perspiring and flush and there's no seats left and you just kind of have to stand back in the corner and everybody kind of keeps looking back and just shaking their head at you, right? That's embarrassing. That'd be filled shame. You multiply that by 100 in this very kind of shame-filled culture and you understand how bad that would be for them. I think about my time in Honduras. Could you imagine once everybody's there before the Pope gets there and, and I, I get up and I take his seat, right? right? Trust me, I would not be there very long. In fact, I wouldn't be in the restaurant much longer than that. Right? Jesus says, don't seat yourself like this. How are you supposed to seat yourself? Verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Right? He says, when you go to a wedding, you go, you go up to the balcony. You go in the back and the groom sees you and he calls over an usher and says, hey, listen, I love him. You need to bring him up. And the usher goes and gets you and says... I'm sorry, sir, you're very honored by the groom. Will you please come? And he would like you to sit in the front. And then you walk down the aisle the right way. Everybody's looking and says, Wow, he must be close to the groom. They must, they must really love him. And Jesus says, This is how you're seat yourself. And in the face of it, it kind of seems, Well, this is kind of a strategy to get a public acclaim. Right? Are we supposed to stage humility so we can be honored by other people? I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus hates pride that pretends a uh, 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 pride that pretends to be humble. I don't think this is about seats or weddings. I think this is about our heart. Are we humble or are we proud? Would you just open, be open to the possibility just for a moment that, that you might be proud? Now, I'm not saying you are. Can you, just, can you just open yourself to that possibility? Because one of the difficult things about preaching about pride is that all the proud people don't think they need to hear it. Because they're too proud, right? Maybe, maybe your maybe your heart is too proud. N- let me try to illustrate it this way. I got this um, flashlight here. See that? Um, it, in fact, I don't know if you you noticed, uh, Don. This light is out, by the way. <laughs> uh, you see You wear them? And then look right here. Have you, you guys. And look, the ceiling looks like it's about to fall over here. So, uh, and I'll tell you, this is a lovely room. I love this room, but. Um, one of the things I don't like the most is, is that, that light. You see that light? These are all very nice and lovely. But, but that, that blind does not close. And I'll tell you, in the summer, it's like a ray of light that shines right down here on the pulpit. And it's blinding. And I, I'm tempted to, to preach in sunglasses one day, I think. See, th- this is how, we, this is how we, we often live this way, don't we? We walk around and we're, we're looking for things that are wrong in people. We're, our hearts are focused on, on where people are messing up, how people don't hold up to our standards. We're looking for ways in which we're better than other people so we can feel bad, better about ourselves. And we focus on the failures of other people. Or if not, what do we do? We focus on ourselves. And, we, and we, we exaggerate our accomplishments, and we try to make sure people think we're witty and accomplished, and, 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 and try to get our comments into the story just so people will think that we know something about the topic, and we, we tend to, 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 to you know exaggerate who we are. We want people to think, "Make much of me, think highly of me." We could put the spotlight on ourselves. We could live each day thinking, "I need to get the acclaim of other people." Or I'll tell you what we could do is, is we could do this. We could live like that. And we could say, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Have, have I told you what Jesus has done for me today? Have, have I told you what I'm learning in His Word? Have I, have I told you how I've been praying to Him, how He's answering my prayers? Look at Look at Jesus. Put our focus on Christ. Friends, that's what we're made for. We're made to point to Jesus. We're made to bring Him glory, not ourselves. We're made to be humble and, and so often we want the attention on us and you say well I don't want the attention I, I don't think I'm great right?" But, but maybe instead what you say is hey my life is terrible look at me and aren't I pathetic look at me or I have so much trouble in my life look at me life is so hard it's just look, look at me there's this humility that that masquerades uh, the uh, pride that masquerades as humility. You 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 can think poorly of yourself and still be filled with this desire for the attention. You're you're made to point to Jesus. You're made to exalt him. It's not about chairs, it's not about seats. It's about Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he continues to do in our life. And here's the amazing thing. When we humble ourselves, when we're not thinking of ourselves, you know what Jesus will do for you? He will then exalt you. Look, look in verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, God loves to exalt his image bearers who point to him. He likes to exalt us in this life and certainly in the life to come. His mother sang of it when she found she would receive Jesus. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. Right? God will lift us up. He'll lift up the humble. It's because the humble people are, are the people who look to God for help. The, the proud people, they go to God and say, I deserve acceptance. The proud people come before God and say, look what I've done. Look, I'm a good person. Look at what I've accomplished. You should accept me because of who I am. And it's those people that will be rejected. Because they are not what they think they are. Namely good. Good. They do not honor God like they should. They do not keep His law like they should. And if you come before God filled with pride in your heart and say, accept me because who I am, you'll be cast away. It is only the humble who come to God, only the poor in spirit, and say, I don't deserve to be accepted by you. I've failed you time and again. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, please. And it's those that God will exalt. This has often been called the gospel irony. Those who try to show their worthiness before God will be cast away as unworthy. Those who acknowledge their unworthiness will be accepted as worthy. This is not about seats and a wedding. It's about salvation. How is it that we're saved? We humble ourselves and bow our knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is not by your good works. It is simply by putting our faith in Christ. We are to humbly receive Christ and then we are to humbly to live for Christ. Are you humble? Do you confess your sins to people? The proud will keep their sins quiet. Do you have people in your life where you could talk to openly about your failings? Or do you not do that because you're too proud to talk about them? The humble look for evidence of God's grace in other people's lives. Look for how people God's blessing other people. The proud look for what's wrong in people's lives. The humble will willingly receive correction. It's the proud that chafe against being corrected the humble study God the way he's different the humble study the cross and consider the costliness of God's love Jesus looks at them and says you are all filled with arrogant hearts and you think by now the party's over don't you he's exposed their cold uncompassionate hearts of prideful men you think they would stop leaving but no one leaves and so Jesus says thirdly and we'll move quickly Why we're at it you're all greedy you need to have generous hearts Look in verse 12. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be paid repaid at the resurrection of the just. I want to be clear here. Jesus is not saying you can't have friends over for dinner. This is hyperbole. Jesus, this is, this, Jesus will do this. We'll see this very clearly later in Luke chapter 14 when he says you have to hate your mom and dad and son and daughter and even your own life. He's exaggerating to prove a point. Right? He, 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 in fact, Jesus would dine with friends over and over again. Right? But what Jesus is saying is if you only invite your friends over, you only spend time and do life with people who can bless you in return, you're missing it. You're just looking out for yourself. Jesus looks at this man and says, When you give a lunch, don't invite the rich. Invite, don't invite somebody, people who could do things for you, who could pay you back. Instead, invite those who add little value to your life. Because you're not looking for payback. You're not looking for them to come and bless you. You're looking to love them. You're looking to be generous to them. You're, you're to show that you have all you need in Christ and, by, and therefore you can share the love of Christ with those who have nothing to offer you. Right? Just as Christ did with you. You know, the only thing we have to offer Christ is our sin. And yet he invited us into his life, didn't he? He says, be like Christ. Bring the needy, the hurting into your life, into your home. Or we might say, show hospitality. I don't often care for the word hospitality. I, I think it's, it sounds like a, even in our context, it sounds like a weak word. I, I think of hospitality, I think of Martha Stewart. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe there's someone new. I don't know if she's still in jail or, or what's going on, but... I don't want to be like Martha Stewart I don't think that's what Jesus is saying He's not talking about entertaining He's not talking about place settings Hospitality, the literal uh, rendering Is welcoming strangers Bringing strangers into your life Into your home Your home, of course, is the place where you're nourished. The home is where you relax, isn't it? The home, you know, out there it's cold. At home it's warm. Out there things are disordered. At home you have things just the way you you want them, right? It's not perfect, of course. No one's home is. But the home is a refuge, isn't it? The home is where you go to get refreshed. The home is your harbor. Hospitality means bringing people into your harbor. It means welcoming them into the heart of your life. It means being generous, not with your money, but with your life. Welcoming them into your home to refresh them with what refreshes you. You welcome them. You welcome the strangers into your home. This November, uh, we are calling for the church to embrace this thanks-serving initiative. Three weeks in which we will reach out into our community. Sharing the love of Christ in one way as Pastor Joshua will help us understand in the coming days is that we're asking the first week of November that you invite someone into your home that does not know Jesus for a meal. It might be a coworker, It might be a neighbor. It might be a, a family of a child's friend, right? It might be the needy. And, and, and you could even begin to pray about who you might involve your children. Get them together and begin to pray about who might come into to your home that you might, might love them. Remember, it's not, it's not, people are not projects. We invite them into our home, right? Because we, we love them and we want to share our life with them and we want, uh, want to seek a relationship with them and an opportunity to, to witness to them. Someone once said that people are not argued to belief, they're loved into belief. And Jesus says, and bring them into your home, right? And you say, well, this is going to be hard. It's going to be costly. Well, Jesus knows that. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, you will be blessed not because they repay you, right? Not because they have something to offer you back. Not because it's going to be easy and comfortable. You'll be repaid, what? At the resurrection of the just. You'll be blessed because they can give you nothing. God will. And Jesus says, any self-denial you give here, God's going to take no. And I I, I hesitate to even use the word, but I'm going to use it because Jesus used it. God will repay you. He will give to you abundantly beyond all that you sacrifice for the cause of his kingdom. Pour yourself out for people. Friends, life is not supposed to be easy and comfortable. Well, there's times of that, certainly, but we are to, to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. And who is Christ spending all his time with? Very difficult and needy people. We are to be like him. You, you say well, it costs too much, it's too hard. I tell you, it doesn't, it doesn't cost you what you think it does. You're not missing out. You'll be repaid at the resurrection. So, what are you living for? Do you have compassionate hearts? Or do you have a cold religion? you have a humble heart? Do people exist to make much of you? Does your anger arise when people refuse to bless you in the way you think they ought to? you have a generous heart? Or do you only get to know people who have something to give you? This is what Christ is talking about. Your religion doesn't come and penetrate to your heart. Do you have uh, an affection for Christ? Will you do what he calls you to do? And he says, those people, listen, you will, you will be repaid for this at the resurrection. You notice what he says? Of the, what? The just. Maybe your translation says the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous. You think, well, see, we, we can look at this and we can, we can mistake what Jesus is talking about. We could think, okay, if I'm compassionate and I'm I'm humble and I'm generous, then I become righteous and then I get into the resurrection. Well, if that's the way you think, how do you know if it's enough? How do you know if it's compassionate enough or humble enough or, or generous enough? That's not what Christ is saying. In fact, Christ would go to the cross precisely because you are not compassionate enough and humble enough and generous enough. And nor am I. And He goes to the cross. He who had the, had the highest seat would, t- would be thrown out. Of the feast in order that we might be brought in. He would trade places with you. And Christian as you consider Christ's generosity to you. Has he been generous to you? As you consider the fact that his compassion to you. Have you received his compassion? When you think of the humility of Christ. The fact that he humiliated himself for you. You know what happens? You become free. It frees you. As you consider Christ, I don't need to have to clamor for myself. I'm free to give because I have all I need in Christ. And and you become like Him. You become, as you gaze upon Him, transformed from one degree to another into His likeness. Our Father in Heaven, help us to be like Jesus. Help us, Father, not just to go through the motions, but penetrate our hearts. Help us to give our hearts. Help Christ to be everything to us and therefore we no longer, Father, have to to clamor after ourselves because Christ is enough for us. Help us to be like Jesus. And remind us, Father, that our hope is not in being like Jesus. Father, our hope is the fact that Jesus recognized we are not like Him and came to rescue us anyway. I pray for our friends here or our friends who have yet to bow their knee to King Jesus. Will you please, even now in your kindness, draw them to yourself? Will you awaken in their hearts a desire to yield their life to Christ in faith and repentance that they would see the work of Christ for them and that they would be won by Him? Today and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.